Hello everyone. Welcome to the 10th episode of Radio Edict. India is currently going through the second wave of the COVID-19 pandemic and the situation is pretty dire. The monumental increase in cases is accompanied with a shortage of hospital beds, oxygen and important drugs. To discuss this deadly second wave, its causes and effects and the government's response, I have with me an expert panel of professors from Ashoka University. First, we have Professor Gautam Menon, the professor of biology and physics, who has long been interested in the modeling of infectious disease and its impact on public policy. Our second guest today is Professor L.S. Shashidhara, the professor of biology, as well as the dean of research at Ashoka University. And lastly, we have with us Professor Shahid Jamil, an eminent virologist and the director of the Trivedi School of Biosciences. Welcome panel. It is an honor to have you here with us. In the last month, we've seen a massive increase in cases, and we've also seen lockdowns being implemented in different states. Closer to home, we've seen how the Ashoka campus that had welcomed students in January decided to shut down because of the increasing number of cases, which reached almost 50 by the end of April. Let's begin by discussing how the situation unfolded on campus itself, and then we can move on to discussing the larger COVID situation in the country. Um, the first question uh, to Professor Shashi Dhara, um, I'm guessing you were involved in the COVID policy and the protocols that were implemented on campus. So as you know, Ashoka was one of the first colleges in India to open to students this year. And what were some of the major challenges that we had to face, keeping in mind the residential nature of the campus, the central ventilation system, given that the new variants were airborne? And were these challenges met adequately? So uh, just to put this uh, whole scenario in the perspective, when, when the you know, pandemic outbreak happened elsewhere in the world, the government was cautious and then it took a very harsh decision to have a national lockdown and everybody had to comply, right? And so we didn't have any option. We had to close down uh, the campus. So there was no specific campus-specific policy uh, that we could even design or even think of at that time. But when slowly uh, the economic and social activities started opening up, particularly educational activities, uh, we were thinking of two reasons we wanted to open the campus. One is large number of students you know, had difficulties you know, in dealing with the online learning is simply because of access to the technology. The second was the signal problem. And because of the pandemic situation all over the country, there was increased demand for internet. And that actually uh, reduced the availability of the bandwidth, uh, particularly in the you know, semi-urban and rural areas, including even metro cities, many places. So we have had to bring back large number of students back on campus. There was not because of any pandemic related policy or epidemiological related uh, decision. It was more of a need of the student to have uh, better educational opportunities, they didn't, should not lose a whole year or even beyond that, you know, if they continue to wait to get good education. And also there would be more inequality in access to education between have and have nots if we don't allow students to come back to the campus. So only uh, the COVID related measure that was we wanted to create a bubble around um, uh, Ashoka. Uh, so that uh, the cases that are coming inside will be much fewer. And uh, one of the major policy was single room occupancy in the hostel, which otherwise is always uh, a double room occupancy, if you all have experienced. And, uh, and then still, there were no on classes. Uh, everything was online, except those who had to be uh, 
you know, uh, go to the classes for, um, for lab-related work, particularly in the science departments. And otherwise, it, the, the student were in the campus only to access internet so that their online learning is better and not for any other additional uh, you know, benefits, benefits. So this actually, this policy helped to provide them an opportunity at the same time, reduce the incidence on the campus. But unfortunately, the second wave which hit has completely overturned all uh, you know, expectations. And we had to go back, even if it was worse than the first wave. You know, wave. And that's what we're experiencing now. Right, Professor. Um, so just to build upon that, what do you believe is the reason for the spike in cases inside Ashoka? I mean, given, as you said, we did try to create a bio bubble, like we tried to create a bubble around Ashoka and students weren't moving out of campus except for essential services. So what do you believe could have caused the rise of cases towards the end of April? Well, I mean, you know, when there is a, a large number of cases outside the campus, right, let's say NCR, right, the number of cases were going so many, right, and it's unlikely that the virus will not enter, however, your bubble is, unless, you know, we are so much isolated, they don't even interact with anybody. So you had to sort of interact with people uh, for food or for any other uh, common facilities. And that's bound to have some cases, but considering the number of students and other staff and the, you know, the people who are working in the campus, the number of cases is still very few uh, compared to many other campuses. For example, IIT Kanpur you know, suffered much more than uh, uh, per, you know, let's say 100 people on campus compared to Ashoka. So that way it's the spike was sort of expected in a community transmission. Uh, you know, to put it on record, I myself got infected uh, while on campus. And on that particular week, we tested more than 100 people who were in the, in the academic block in which I work. Not a single uh, case was positive. I was the only one who was, became positive. Considering all the activities around me, it's, uh, you know, I couldn't trace from where I got the infection. This is what's called community transmission. It's unavoidable in a, in, a, in a pandemic state when so many cases are around us. Okay, um, that I think that really cleared things up. So moving on, um, and this question is for Professor Jamil. So the first wave um, was handled pretty early on in India last year, around March, we had a very strict lockdown, which definitely did slow the spread of the virus. And in an interview that you gave to Bloomberg a while ago, you said that because of that, we were blindsided into believing that we were out of the pandemic safely. So, Professor, do you believe we could have predicted the second, this second wave had we done more research? Or what could have helped us predict um, the scale of the second wave? Uh, well, Akanksha, uh, we didn't need to do any research uh, to predict the second wave. We just had to keep our eyes open. Uh, you know, if you look around what's happening in the world, every country that peaked before India had a second wave. So there was no reason to believe why India wouldn't have a second wave. However, there was this constant narrative that somehow Indians are special. Uh, you know, our leadership also uh, went on to declare premature victory of the virus. And that is not just in India, but at 
international fora such as the World Economic Forum. Uh, you know, the health minister went on record to say that uh, the COVID endgame was, was near. Uh, and it is really because of this uh, blindsided policy that we also allowed uh, super spreader events to uh, take place. You know, events uh, such as the local and state body elections, uh, religious festivals such as the Kum. We had a lot of large weddings in January and February. All of this really led to the sharp surge in the second wave. I mean, what we did not realize is how big the second wave would be. But I think everyone sort of understood that the second wave will come. And it is really up to the policymakers to make policy to, to deal with it. And they were themselves falsely creating this narrative that uh, India is out of it. Uh, so I really don't think any, any more research was required. Uh, it's just a matter of keeping your eyes open. So Professor, to what extent would you say that the scale of the second wave was avoidable? Well, it was certainly avoidable if we had not allowed super spreader events to happen. Uh, if, uh, if voting can be, uh, can be electronic and people at voting booths have to be separated by six feet, why were election rallies not held online? I mean, we could have still have had an election uh, instead of gathering lakhs of people in one location. So all that was avoidable. But, uh, you know, with this constant uh, patting of our backs saying that we have conquered it, uh, we got blindsided. Or maybe we, we wanted to give this narrative to justify uh, having all these, all these super spreader events. Just to add uh, what uh, Professor Jamil mentioned, you know, 30% of our population are completely online. The education is completely online now, both school and higher education. So, uh, you know, an election, uh, electioneering rather campaign could have been completely online. Right? That's what uh, I think. Yeah, exactly. And uh, what Dr. Shashidara is saying is, is exactly right. We can, we can ask school children to, and, and college children to study online whether they have the means to do that or not. But we can't have election rallies online. I mean, that just beats me. I don't understand this. Uh, this is the kind of policy that has created this problem for us. Right, Professor. So um, moving on to discussing the second wave itself. So um, from the data that we have right now, um, I think there's Two, two variants um, in India currently. One is the double mutant and the other is the UK variant or the B117 variant. Um, Professor Jamil, um, what can you tell us about these new variants and their role in the spread of the second wave? Sure. So let's step back a little and understand what these variants really are. Uh, so whenever a virus uh, multiplies, it 
also uh, replicates its uh, its genome, uh, its genetic material, which is RNA in this case. And when one RNA molecule makes two, two makes four, there are random errors that happen in the process of multiplication. Uh, the virus has no machinery to correct those errors. Uh, so these mutations become ingrained in the genome. Now, a very large majority of these mutations are detrimental to the virus, and therefore you never see those in the population. Those viruses don't survive and, and go forward. The only ones that go forward offer some advantage to the virus to circulate in the population. This could be uh, simply infecting uh, cells a little better, transmitting from an infected individual to a susceptible individual a little better, or maybe uh, evading pre-existing immunity a little better. And it is these little changes that can give uh, you know, advantage to a virus to survive in the population. And when multiple mutations come together, uh, they form a lineage. So, you know, we can, we can trace uh, where, for example, the B117, which is the UK variant came from. We can trace where the B1617, which is the Indian variant came from. So coming back to these two variants, when were they first detected? Uh, the Indian variant, the B1617, was first seen at very low levels from Maharashtra in December. Uh, it was reported and no one really paid too much attention to it. And that is also because we were not sequencing at very high levels at that time. Uh, however, as more sequencing happened, as more samples were sequenced, uh, we realized that uh, it rose uh, quite significantly uh, in the months of February and March, and and by, then became really became a dominant uh, variant circulating in, in Maharashtra. Uh, and from Maharashtra, it has now moved out uh, to the rest of the country. Really, uh, it's all over. The second variant, which is the UK variant of B one one seven, was first detected in travelers from UK in January through airport screening. Uh, and the protocol was that everyone who was positive would have to quarantine. Of course, some people broke quarantine and that's how the uh, virus went in the community. So if you look at Punjab, for example, which you know has uh, a lot of ties with UK, uh, this variant became the dominant variant in, variant in the population, circulating maybe around 80% of the of the virus in Punjab was, was this variant. Uh, so this, all this mutation, all this, uh, you know, variant propagation was also happening at a time when these super spreader events that I talked about happened. And it is really a combination of these that led to the surge. Uh, both of these variants uh, infect a little better, transmit a little better, and at least one of these may be able to uh, evade pre-existing immunity just a little better. Uh, so this narrative that we had the surge because of these mutants 
is only half true. Uh, a mutant by itself will not lead to the surge unless we give the opportunity for the mutant or any virus to spread. And that was provided by the super spreader events. Uh, so it's your, your other question was whether RT-PCR tests can detect these variants. And the answer is that yes, it can be detected. The UK, the early UK variant was somehow evading uh, RT-PCR tests. So these tests were then tweaked uh, and the new tests uh, are perfectly fine with uh, both of these variants, as well as other mutants that are circulating in the population. You know, when you hear that uh, somebody tested negative, but they still got disease, uh, that is still possible because, uh, you know, the PCR test by itself is very sensitive, but it depends upon how the sample is collected. If sample is not collected properly, then the PCR is going, not going to detect it. So I believe that is one reason why a lot of tests have come negative because untrained people or poorly trained people have been collecting. And the second reason could be that uh, in our uh, rush to produce reagents in the country, uh, we produce, we, you know, we gave licenses to companies that are producing substandard reagents and there really is no quality control. So it's really a combination of, of that that is causing this problem of uh, negative test detection. It's not the virus. Right, thank you, Professor. So just building upon um, your um, point about the negative test reports, um, I think I'd like to move on to Professor Menon. And I'd like to ask, what does the current positivity rate tell us about India's standing? And if we take into account the fact that, you know, the negative test reports and substandard testing, how much can we rely on the positivity rate at this point? Right now, positivity rates are so high. They're about 21% across India and in individual cities, it's gone up to about 30% plus. And I think there are a whole bunch of states where hovering around somewhere between 25 and 30. So in this sort of situation, it's obvious that you're not testing enough. So the individual quality of the test, I think, is, is probably a little less important than the fact that you should be testing much more to actually detect the scale of the true problem. Right now in Delhi, you have a situation where you have people who, if they want to get someone to come home and test them, it takes about four to five days before that person can come and a further two days before the test result is actually obtained. So that's seven days. So if you're already symptomatic at the point at which you've asked for the test, by the time you're seven days, you're well on the downswing of the infection, but assuming that things have gone well since the point at which you asked to be tested. So that is really influencing many things at this point. Plus, you know, the, the sort of the fact that you don't want to go and expose yourself if you don't have the disease. In a testing situation where lots of people are crowding, crowding around in an outside testing environment. There have been some moves to set this right. The latest ICMR um, guidelines on this push for increasing um, this rapid antigen testing. These are less accurate, less sensitive than the PCR, but they can be rolled out at scale. And they're also point of care tests. You get your answer within about 15 minutes of actually taking the test. And if they return a positive, it's very likely that you are positive. If they return a negative, then you should get tested again with the PCR. So that just to make sure that that is correct. That's roughly how these tests actually work. 
So we should be testing more. Our test positivities are way too high. I would say that that's really a, a message to us to be ramp up our testing wherever we can and ensure that there are no delays. And of course, Delhi and the big cities are quite different from what happens in more rural areas, where often to get tested you may have to travel 80 kilometers to the nearest town where there is a testing center, and people are not willing to do that. So the the scale of the epidemic, the level of the country as a whole. is really not clear to us for that reason right and um just to build on um the last point uh, there was a news report recently uh, in the indian express that talked about that talked about how the second wave is hitting rural areas in india more would you um would you say that's accurate or would you say that it's because testing has been ramped up in the second wave in the rural areas that we are able to finally detect that it is affecting the rural areas more in this wave i think from all the reporting that we are seeing there is a there is a huge upswell of cases in rural india that is just not being attended to cities like delhi and bombay get all the attention because that's where the tv cameras are and the journalists are and that's where the, you know that's the message that goes out to the world but we're actually missing the stories from more rural parts of india from madhya pradesh from up from parts of the south or what is actually happening there and i think the scale of the disease is probably much larger than we would have estimated if we just looked at the big cities alone of course there these are also cities that have seen a substantial number of cases in the past that we know of both bombay and delhi and bangalore etc so the likelihood is that if reinfections are not so important as 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 we might expect then that number is automatically going to be blunted a little bit it cannot rise too far at this point but rural india is not like that already rural india was hit a little less during the previous wave so they have a whole reservoir of people who can now be infected in this much more fast moving wave currently so i would i would say that our, our undercounting now is really much more serious in rural india than it is it's bad enough in urban india but that's where the, the real numbers will be contributed by rural and not by urban india at this point so moving on professors um at this point um i think what our audience would really like to know and what a lot of people would like to know is what are the possibilities of a third wave from the data that we have right now like what can we predict about it it's impossible to predict something like that with certainty and there's no there's no automatic requirement that you have a third wave now that we've experienced the first wave and a very very bad second wave in terms of our health system really being unable to cope with the numbers that we are seeing hopefully if people can be uh, enthused or incentivized enough just from that experience to avoid the sort of situation that we saw going into the second wave which really as as both shahid and and shashi have said was because we threw caution to the winds we allowed certain types of political activity that brought large numbers of people together in large groups religious gatherings etc opened up schools in some part of the country without sufficient caution and of course all of this was aided by the variants so it's a combination of things biological changes in the virus that are the variants as well as relaxation that leads to larger contacts between people i think what we if we want to avoid a third wave and it's completely possible to avoid third wave there's no inevitable inevitability to a third wave what we need to do is just to make sure that we have better data from across the country to figure out where our cases increasing why are they increasing are there new variants there with a sort of sudden increase in mixing of people leading to larger contacts in those locations and take stringent measures in that particular region you know what whatever it it takes to prevent it from getting outside if we do that carefully enough we can ensure that we're not seeing a build up here even with the second wave 
there were early warning signals from interior Maharashtra of cases going up about the 12th or 15th of February that really built up in the weeks after that. And of course, once the, the, the new, the UK variant began to spread in, in the Punjab and then later in Delhi, et cetera, there were also certainly signals of that, that things were happening. So had we moved faster at that point, we could have prevented it from perhaps not reaching the sort of heights that it currently reached, but slowing it down. So I would say we need more information. We need more data. We need to change the way we behave. And we have, people have to realize that this is a fundamental change that you make. How do we retool the things that we have done earlier such that there is a better ventilation overall in any place that needs to be enclosed? You don't have too many people crowding to do a particular thing as far, as far, as far as possible. I mean, there may be some small subset of, of um, occupation where it's vital to do that. But wherever possible, we should try and minimize that. We should normalize the wearing of masks. There is no innovation as good as the wearing of masks that really cuts down transmission of the disease. And mask wearing, and I think really the message is ventilation. Whenever you have a disease that is respiratory in character and is transmitted through these small aerosols, these small droplets that float around in the air, the only way to do it is to block and to ventilate. So now we know much more about these bones, the, the, the most basic essence of the disease now. If we pay attention to that in a serious manner, you know, not, not just because of, the, of sort of theater of trying to do something, but be serious about in everything that we do, there is no requirement that we will see a third wave. That's really reassuring, Professor. Um, just to move on, um, and uh, Professor Jameel, you can um, jump into in this question. So now that there's news of other variants emerging in Andhra Pradesh and in Telangana, what is the appropriate action that should be taken by public, by the government uh, and by people themselves to stop the spread? Um, should we be concerned about the, these new variants? Uh, let me address that, uh, Gangsha. Uh, you know, the N4440K variant, which people have suddenly started talking about in Andhra and Telangana, is really a false story. Uh, it's, it's really an old story. Uh, the, uh, all this happened because uh, this one lab took a virus with that mutation, put it on cells and culture, and saw that this virus grew faster in cell culture, about 15 times faster than the other virus they were comparing it to. Uh, and all this uh, news in the press about a more infectious variant emerging in Andhra comes from that one report. Uh, uh, you know, what happens in a cell culture in a lab environment doesn't necessarily have happen in a population. Uh, and in fact, by uh, sequencing, we already know that uh, the B1617 or the Indian variant has now completely overtaken uh, this variant in Telangana and Andhra Pradesh. And it turns out that the viruses that these people looked at were actually collected before December 2020. So it's an old story. It has no basis. And uh, people who were doing these experiments didn't really understand what they were doing and then the press didn't understand what they were doing. And it was simply blown out of proportion. Old story, dead story, uh, no truth to it. 
Okay, thank you, Professor. Um, now to move on from discussing um, about the problem to discussing solutions. Um, I think India's vaccination program um, definitely deserves um, to be discussed. And currently, India's vaccine program is a public-private partnership. Um, how far would you, Professor, how far would you say that the strategy has either succeeded or it has failed? Should there be changes that India sh should be implementing to its vaccination program? Well, let me start with it and then maybe Shashi and Gautam can add to it. Uh, you know, India started the program on the right note. Uh, we started in mid-January and we wanted to vaccinate 300 million people in the first lot. And these 300 million, the first would be healthcare workers, 10 million healthcare workers, followed by 10 million, uh, sorry, 20 million uh, frontline workers. And then uh, 270 million people above the age of 60 and those below 60 who had significant comorbidities. And that was a well thought out plan. It was the right plan uh, because in a pandemic situation, you want your vaccine to do uh, three things. One is to protect people who are at the front line of the pandemic, which is healthcare workers and frontline workers. The second is to reduce mortality. And that was the older age group and people with comorbidities. And the third is to break the pandemic. So if you were, if you protected the, these, these groups, then you would start addressing the pandemic as well. Unfortunately, uh, in January and February, when a lot of us who were eligible to get the vaccine did not go forward and take the vaccine. And that was because they were constantly hearing from the government that as far as India is concerned, the pandemic is over. They were also hearing from outside India that uh, AstraZeneca vaccine, which was the main vaccine in India, Covishield, uh, was giving rise to blood clots without realizing that the uh, risk of getting a blood clot was actually half the risk of getting struck by lightning. So people did not make uh, association, you know, did not connect with, with this risk and everyone thought that I would be the one who will die after taking a vaccine. So all these things really put together did not allow us to get vaccinated when we should have been vaccinated. And that partly is also responsible for the big surge that we are seeing in the second wave. Uh, of course, there were other uh, issues. Uh, India started exporting vaccine to other countries and rightly so because India had both commercial commitments as well as moral commitments to do that. But the critical mistake that we made was to not secure enough vaccine doses for our own population. We did not support the vaccine companies in time to make enough doses and keep them for availability at home. You know, it did not take uh, much to understand that if you have to vaccinate, let's say 60% of India, you will need, uh, you know, more than a billion doses. Uh, so we should have made sure and planned for those doses. And we didn't do that in time. Uh, I'll turn it over to others. No, no, just to, as a, because of the whole, uh, 
this question started as solutions, as Shai mentioned. Most important is to vaccinate as many people as possible to reduce the uh, infection as well as uh, particularly mortality. Uh, even if people are somewhat still get infected, people should know that you know what is the purpose of vaccine and how it will protect us, how it protect our neighbors, other members in the family, and then should get vaccinated. Of course, we should vaccine should be available to get vaccinated, and that's where the the massive operation should start now. You know, procuring all the raw material for vaccine production, and then allowing the more and more companies to produce vaccines. And uh, you know, we just rely on two companies to make. You know, as Professor uh, Jamil said, we need close to about uh, you know billion plus doses of vaccine in the next three to four months. And we are talking about impossible thing, but we should make it possible because it's a life and death question. Yeah, I mean, I can say that I, I agree completely, Shahid. I think we started out well with the right philosophy, mainly to, to vaccinate those who are most at risk, frontline workers, as well as people above the age of 60, and then people above the age of 45 with, uh, with comorbidities, and then later expanded to everybody above the age of 45. I'm not so sure about the advisability of expanding it currently to 18 plus, given the situation that we do have too few vaccines at the moment. I think there is still a case for prioritizing the, the, the more at-risk population, especially the senior population, because that's where the difference in mortality really is in terms of vaccines. I agree completely that we do have moral responsibilities to the rest of the world as part of the various international agreements that we've entered in. A little more planning, exactly as he says, for scale, to understand the scale of the problem would have helped earlier on. Maybe opening up vaccines that had been authorized for emergency use elsewhere in the world a little earlier getting into agreements with those manufacturers, negotiating with them earlier would have helped. Maybe uh, sort of supporting them as well as other manufacturers, not just these two big behemoths, Bharat Biotech and, um, and Serum Institute, but supporting other manufacturers in, 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 in vaccine manufacturing earlier may have also made a difference. But it's completely right, as Shishidara says, that the only way out is vaccination. And that has to be a priority. And we know that it's made a difference. If you look at the data from Bangalore and from Karnataka, you can see the changes that it has made in terms of mortality of those over 60, as just as the vaccination has actually proceeded. So here's an example, a very concrete numbers example, where we know that vaccinations reduce mortality and it's important that a population gets them as soon as possible, whichever way they can. Right, just a small follow-up to that. Um, now that India has, um, recently it has, opened up the emergency use of vaccines from abroad. Um, I think it has cleared um, Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson vaccines too. Um, uh, before, when the vaccines came in, um, there was some discussion about Moderna and Pfizer and the feasibility of those vaccines in India, considering the tropical climate. Have those concerns um, been laid over now? Has there been more research on that? Or, um, you know, is there a vaccine like, to ask the perennial question, which vaccine is better uh, suited to India's climate, better suited to the people of your people here? Professor. I, I think Shahid can step in, but my yeah. impression yes. would be that any vaccine, whichever vaccine is closest to you and is accessible to you, you should take it. The differences between these vaccines as far as uh, their efficacy is concerned is relatively minor. All vaccines will protect. I, I agree with Gautam, and uh, let me just address uh, this whole business of 
what the efficacy of a vaccine is. Much has been said about uh, the efficacy and people are worried about efficacy of vaccines. Uh, you know, let's say there is a vaccine that is that has an efficacy of 80%. It does not mean that if 100 people are given the vaccine, 80 will be protected and 20 will not be protected. That's not what efficacy is. What it means is that for everyone who takes the vaccine, it reduces the risk of serious disease by 80%. So it doesn't matter whether you're taking a vaccine which is 70% or 80% or 90%. Every single vaccine will reduce the risk of you getting serious disease. And all vaccines have been shown to protect 100% against mortality. That is really the important part. So don't worry about whether I should take vaccine A or B. Just go and take the vaccine which is most easily available to you. So uh, the, the, the doubts are not about the efficacy or the efficiency of the vaccine. It's about our ability to vaccinate people using, let's say, uh, very, you know, the vaccines which are very sensitive to temperature, right? And considering that our supply chain pipeline, cold storage facilities are not as good as in US. So in that context, we still have a large population, or urban population, which can who can be vaccinated using Moderna or Pfizer because we have, you know, the cold storage facilities at least in large cities, and you know, 50 years ago, much of Indian population was rural and very few in, in urban areas. Even urban infrastructure for cold storage was not that good. Getting liquid nitrogen or dry ice in in any city which is which has a population of a million and above is is very common. Even restaurants use regularly these cold storages at minus 40, minus 60 and so forth. I think we have now sufficient infrastructure, at least for 50 to 60% of the population who can be vaccinated using any of the vaccines. And the, which are the, the rural areas where you not have access to cold storage, we can still use you know, other vaccines like Covishield, right? Which uh, can be stored in a regular refrigerator. So I, I think it, again, certain strategy planning is all important. You should not worry about which vaccine and so forth. Thank you, Professor. Um, so moving on to Professor Menon. Speaking in colloquial terms, I think the question on everyone's minds right now is when will this end? When will the pandemic end? And as someone who's worked in mathematical modeling of diseases, um, can you tell us a bit more about the cycle of a pandemic? How many waves it goes through? Um, how does it um, you know, eventually become endemic? And yeah. How does it end, in a sense? <laughs> I mean, so that depends upon how you think about the word end and what might be a logical end point for something like COVID-19. The likelihood is, if you look long enough, that the virus will mutate until presumably it reaches a point where it transmits probably the same or maybe a little better than it does now, but is less lethal to the host. It's already, its lethality is fairly low. The probability that someone will die of COVID-19 is actually fairly small. Most people will recover. There are other coronaviruses that are responsible for the common cold, and these are endemic. They keep their sort of steady background of, of virus, of, 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 of those viruses throughout the year, throughout actually a few decades now. It's likely, it's one very strong possibility is that, that what will happen with COVID-19. 
in which case we'll have to just get used to having a vaccination at intervals of about two or three of the booster dose intervals of about a few years. We still don't know enough about the immunology of COVID-19 yet to be able to say that. Usually a very classic epidemic has one peak and comes down. What happens after that depends upon what changes there are in the virus. Is it a virus that is constantly mutating, you know, constrained in the number of changes that it can actually make? And it's, it seems to be that, that COVID-19 doesn't mutate as fast as influenza, which is certainly a good thing, but nevertheless, it does mutate. And because there is such a huge number of cases across the world, inevitably, there will arise mutations that are a little better at infecting people. And without care, those, those mutations will spread through the population, giving rise to new variants. And if they turn out to be evade immunity in some minor way, then you might think of them as variants of concern. And maybe you should look into the question of are your vaccines working as effectively against them as they did against the earlier variant or the earlier strain of virus. So the real question is that, I mean, there is no simple answer to that question. One guess would be that this will become endemic. It will be survive at a low level in the population. That, that vaccinating your people once will provide you a reasonable amount of, of protection against it. And maybe one has to think about having, having later boosted doses of the vaccine a few years down the line. But even to say that, make that statement, we need to understand a little more about immunology, associated immunology and vaccinology of the virus. So this is where we really need more work in basic research. This is an area of research that is important. How do we think about new emerging diseases, especially zoonotic diseases that come to us from animals? What are strategies that we can employ? How soon can we deploy new vaccines to deal with them as they come, as they come work? And then try to look long term to see how do we change population behavior in such a way to ensure that that uh, that a virus like this doesn't spread. So uh, just to repeat and and put it in another perspective, you know, if Spanish flu went on for more than two years, right, about hundred years ago, when we didn't know anything about uh, immunology or we didn't know anything about viruses themselves. And at the same time, mobility was much less, right? Within the country or between countries or between the uh, nations. Now, considering the mobility and uh, and so much we know, uh, everybody's expectation was it should not last that long, right? But it's not the question of how long it lasts as uh, also mentioned it may you know be more important the disease or causing the mortality the question is also about what all the effort should be to save lives right everybody all kinds of measures they are taking is to save lives and in the in the in the policy to save lives you may actually prolong the pandemic Right, because all kinds of restrictions that we are putting amongst ourselves to save lives—that's equally important, right? I don't want to lose uh, my life or life of, uh, of my family members uh, simply with not doing anything. Uh, anyway, it's going to sort of subside after a year or two. Uh, that's is not what the solution should be in the modern society. So it it may prolong longer than the uh, hundred-year-old. Uh, you know, sorry, the pandemic of the of the previous century. I think how much we can save lives is what should be in our uh, you know, strategy, and that should be the focus. Shahid. 
Yeah, so let me add another perspective, uh, and that is from a virus's point of view. You know, for a virus, the underlying force to infect uh, and to, to propagate is exactly the same underlying force that higher order beings such as humans have. At the, at the end of it, you know, everything boils down to be able to uh, propagate your genetic material, to make more of yourself. Uh, humans do it in, in far more sophisticated ways uh, through social interactions. Viruses do it by brute force. Uh, so the point is that for a virus to kill its host has no evolutionary advantage to the virus. A dead host does not transmit the virus. A severely ill host does not transmit the virus. What transmits the virus really well is an asymptomatic host who goes around shedding the virus. And that's a fundamental difference between SARS-2 and SARS-1. SARS-1 was shed only after symptoms appear, so it was easy to contain. SARS-2 is shed even a few days before symptoms come, so you could be transmitting and you would not know that you're transmitting. Now, all viruses, when they jump into a new species, in this case, this has jumped possibly from a bat into a human. They go through a, a process of adjustment with the new host. And it is during this process that as the host and the virus are adjusting to each other, we see things like severe disease and mortality. Once this evolutionary adjustment has happened, then this virus will become endemic and will transmit at low levels in the population, just like other beta coronaviruses that cause about 20% of uh, common colds annually. So that is the future of this virus, just like the future of every other virus. Thank you, Professor. Um, just to end with a last question, um, and this is a more general question for all of you. I think one year in, we can definitely say that the pandemic has changed a lot of things about social behaviors. And um, in the midst of growing health crisis, um, you know, in the midst of increasing spillover, um, you know, pandemics such as this one, how do you see the future of shared public spaces? How do you see the future of human interactions? Um, you know, be it in college campuses, be it um, in larger society itself, what changes would we necessarily have to bring about in our behavior to avoid prevent situations like this in the future? Well, uh, this is more of a, you know, there are two aspects to it. One is awareness, uh, scientific awareness of uh, diseases one. Second is much more social related question. Now I would see, uh, you know, right from the beginning, we have seen it now, you know, much more international, international cooperation. Although there may be a lot of bungling in terms of strategy and 
vested interests also have played a role uh, in terms of uh, vaccine priorities and kind of a thing. But overall, if you look at compared to the you know few years ago, the more cooperation and more uh, you know interest to share information, data, resources, helping each other, and that should continue. And people should not lose trust amongst themselves with their neighbors. Tomorrow, you cannot you know say that you know I'm sitting in a train and what if the next person is going to transmit the virus to me? That continuous mistrust. Uh, is going to be uh, almost lethal to any society because a society of you know half of our population or as much population we have cannot live with with such so much of mistrust among our neighborhood. That's a different aspect to it. I think more scientific awareness and 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 trying to be scientifically aware and practice you know science in our day to day life. I think it. That's what hopefully will will change our behavior much more than something else. Others can. I'll go ahead and then Shahid can have the last word. You asked about public spaces, and I think we'll have to reconceptualize ventilation importantly and the way we think about ventilation in shared areas. Certainly, once hopefully the vaccine situation becomes a little easier it will be possible to have more people vaccinated. And once people have gone through the sequence of vaccinations, that reduces the risk to everybody. And so that is a point, I think, when one can be more open about opening up spaces, opening up college campuses, et cetera. Anytime before that, we have to be appropriately careful and make sure that we just don't crowd too many people in small locations. More and more, I'm beginning to realize the significance of ventilation and the fact that we have not communicated this importantly enough to, to people. The fact that leave windows open, let air flow, try to avoid closed and closed spaces, be outside. We usually communicate negative messages. Don't do this, don't do that. But we can communicate a positive message. Be outside in uncrowded locations, wear a mask, and you and take that time to enjoy the nature around you rather than stay at home. So that's a positive message rather than a negative message so far. The last thing is, of course, just you know, that, that government should not conceal information from their citizens. The more open you can be, the more you, you sort of encourage people to discuss, encourage scientific input, encourage evidence-based policy and evidence-based analysis, the better off you will be. And I think that that is important again to emphasize that you have to give your citizens the information that they need to make sensible decisions. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I'll add to what uh, Gautam just said. I think one key lesson that we had, two key lessons that we have learned in this is how important good communication is. And we have learned it the, the wrong way because communication has been really bad and we've all suffered because of bad communication. So, uh, you know, it, we have to learn to communicate well. Uh, and the second lesson that we've learned is that science has solutions. Science can provide solutions but you have to listen to science. You have to nurture science. Never has it happened that so many vaccines became available within one year of the discovery of a new pathogen. It could only happen because there has been sustained funding for science to do other things. And those platforms have been repurposed to, to make COVID vaccines. So 
make you know good communications continue to support science uh, and remember that you know you don't go out and buy ammunition while the war is on you stockpile on ammunition in peacetime so the ammunition of uh, better vaccines the ammunition of better drugs has to be supported when we are in in peacetime the next pandemic will come we just don't know what it will be and when it will be so we have to be ready for it and uh, finally i think gautam did mention about uh, making policy based on evidence we have seen a lot of uh, uh, the the other way especially in our country where policy is made first and then you try and build evidence to support that policy that's the unscientific way and that will never work and finally uh, you know we we do realize as shashi said that uh, the world has shrunk uh, we are all in the same soup so if anyone anywhere is left unprotected everyone is at risk so we need to understand some of these fundamental things and and move forward and finally don't play too much with the environment our development model uh, is bringing us close to animal habitats from where these viruses are are jumping into human population so have a relook at this development model Thank you so much, professors. Um, it was an extremely informative session, and I'm sure our audience enjoyed this as much as I did. Um, thank you, professors.